Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to ask you to find two verses as we begin today, Isaiah 7, 14, and then put a bookmark also in Micah 5, 2. Here's the key concept today. You know where I'm going already, probably. The prophets point to the Savior. The prophets point to the Savior. We're going to look at prophecies that were spoken more than 700 years before Jesus was born and see how specifically the prophets point to the Savior. And uh, this year, as we come to our Advent uh, lessons, I'm going to use each Sunday a, a Christmas hymn or a Christmas song as a springboard for the truths that we, we want to highlight in this wonderful season. And today, the springboard song is the one that you just sang, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, written by Charles Wesley. That's why I joked that Wesley only got a little smattering of applause there. Charles Wesley wrote that hymn. He says this, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Charles Wesley penned the lyrics to more than 6,500 hymns. During the time that he and his brother John led the Wesleyan revival in England in the mid to late 1700s, 16 of those hymns written by Charles Wesley are in the hymn book uh, in the pew rack in front of you today. And it is fair to say that the revival that God caused to take place through the ministry of John Wesley and Charles, his brother, changed the course of the history of England. Because at the start of the 1700s, England was a spiritual wasteland. Morally, it was becoming more and more decadent. Poverty was rampant. Many of the poor were not provided for, but instead they were sent to workhouses. 97% of the babies born in the workhouses in the 1700s in England died as children. The slave trade was flourishing in England. The clergy themselves were spiritually dead. Churches were lifeless. And into that scene came a man called George Whitfield, who was an evangelist. He had a heart to see people come to faith in Christ. And he didn't see it happening in the churches of his day. So George Whitfield did the unthinkable in that day. He went out and he preached in the open air in the fields and, and by the sides of the roads. And, and that was a scandal in those days because the cultural understanding was that religious things happened in church and nowhere else. But he in the open air started to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and called men and women to, 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 for, to ask for forgiveness of their sins and repent and be saved. And the Holy Spirit used George Whitfield Crowds came to hear him, and soon there was a move of the Spirit in England. And while that was taking place, one of those spiritually dead clergymen was converted to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. It happened on May 24th, 1738, in a Bible study where John Wesley, who was at that time already a pastor, but did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, was confronted and convicted by the Holy Spirit to say yes to Jesus in a personal way, to ask for forgiveness. And he did that in that Bible study. And he writes in his journal of that account, he says, I found my heart strangely warmed. I did trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And John Wesley followed Whitfield's example. 
He too began to preach in the open air. He rode horseback all throughout England, wherever he would go, would be preaching the message of Jesus Christ, and he enlisted his songwriting brother, Charles, musical brother, as his minister of music. And a great revival broke out that changed the fabric of the British society. Anti-slavery societies were formed. Relief agencies for the poor were established. The British Bible Society was founded. Hospitals and schools were multiplied, and people came to faith in Jesus Christ in droves. John writes in his journal, the word of God ran as fire among the stubble, multitudes crying out, what must I do to be saved? And people were saved all throughout the nation of England. And they set up Bible studies to get into the Word together. And they got into the, the, the study of Scriptures in a methodical way that soon they were called Methodists. And that gave rise to the Methodist denomination that we have still in our world today. Historian Diane Severance writes this, that the revival so altered the course of English history that it probably saved England from the kind of bloody revolution that took place in France starting in 1789. And in the midst of all of this spiritual upheaval, Charles Wesley in 1744 published a little book for Christmas, and it was called Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord. And this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, was part of that Christmas hymnal. And today I want you to see the words long expected. Jesus' birth was an, uh, an expected birth. Wesley reminds us of this wonderful truth that, that while the Christmas announcement of the pregnancy was a shock to Mary and it was a surprise to Joseph and it was a sudden bit of really bad news for Herod, it was a planned-for event. It was expected and it was foretold. The prophets had pointed to the Savior very specifically. So go with me in chapter 7 of Isaiah to verse 14. And we read that, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That verse starts with the word therefore, so it tells us that that verse is a conclusion of an ongoing discussion. It's something has been building up to this moment. So what was going on just before Isaiah said these words? Well, in the setting, this prophet, in the setting of this prophecy, in the time when it was spoken, the Assyrian Empire had come of age, and it is now the dominant force in the Middle Eastern region. Assyria was located in what we would now call modern-day uh, northern Iraq, okay? And uh, it was building up its armies. It was conquering lands around it. But at this point in history, when Isaiah says these words, Assyria had not moved westward militarily to the Holy Land as yet. But it was obvious to those who were paying attention to the political climate of the day that this was something that was going to happen. And so, 
the northern half of Israel, which at this point the kingdom was divided, the northern half of Israel, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Samaria, its capital city, sometimes referred to as Ephraim, the northern half of Israel is, has entered into a treaty with Syria to, to defend themselves against Assyria when, they, when, it, when it begins to invade. And they want little Judah... The, king, the southern kingdom to join in their in their uh, in their treaty together, so they together they will fight against Assyria. They want Judah to join, and they also want to keep King Ahaz of Judah from establishing a treaty with Assyria, the dominant power. And they are willing to go to war against Judah to make sure that that little kingdom does not uh, uh, align with Assyria. It's about 740 B.C., and Isaiah is the prophet that is calling out to the people a call back to righteousness, and Isaiah's message is that God has a plan. See, I mentioned a moment ago, Ahaz is the king of the southern half of Israel at this time, Judah, and Ahaz is a man who's known for his wickedness, known for his idolatry, his personal rebellion against God. But in this moment, Ahaz is in trouble because he does not want to form that alliance with Israel and Syria. And he wants to sign a treaty with Assyria, thinking that that greater power will be his protection. And so God says to Isaiah, I want you to go and take your son with you and go and meet Ahaz at the road by the reservoir and give him a message. And here's the message. Go up to verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, firewood, referring to the kingdom of Israel and Syria. Surprisingly, Isaiah brings a message of hope to this evil king. The message of Isaiah is, relax, God has a plan for these armies that are going to attack you. God has a plan to help you. There's no, no threat that's going to destroy you because God is going to fight on your side. But in that reassuring message, there is an implicit challenge for Ahaz, and that is you have to trust God. You have to trust that He's going to be the source of your salvation and not rationalize away the clear direction of God's message. And the message is, I can take care of this. I will take care of this. You need to trust me. Lean on me and not your own understanding. That's the message. Trust. Over Thanksgiving, our family was all together uh, for the Thanksgiving uh, holiday, and uh, including our granddaughter, Trudy, who is now one and a half. And I watched her play with her father. I watched as her father took her and tossed her in the air, then caught her again and tossed her in the air. And I saw that she was relaxed to the point of almost being limp as she's going through the air, giggling, calling for more. And I thought about it. If some big guy was tossing me in the air, I would be horrified. And not only horrified and scared, I would be stiff as a board, right? But not her. She was like totally limp, having a great time, implicitly trusting that her dad will catch her and no harm will come. Now, that's the exact kind of trust that God is calling for from Ahaz. 
implicitly trust that God will take care of this. But you see, Ahaz has already decided to solve the problem his way. Ahaz had a plan, but it's a bad plan. See, we need to understand that your plan, any plan, when it's different than God's plan, is a bad plan. I read about a a would-be jewelry store thief who decided that the way he was going to rob this particular jewelry store was to toss a brick through the big window in the front of the store, climb in real quick, grab what he could grab, and then take off. And so late at night, after the store was closed, the streets were darkened, he went down in front of that jewelry store, and he tossed a brick at the window. What he didn't realize was that the glass had been replaced by unbreakable plexiglass. So when he tossed that brick against the the window, it bounced right back and hit him in the head, knocked him unconscious, but it did set off the alarm. And when the police came, they found him lying on the sidewalk with the brick on his chest. That was a bad plan. And Ahaz makes a bad plan. He decides that rather than trusting God, rather than turning to prayer, he is going to appeal to the superpower of the day, Assyria, invite them to come to his aid and let them fight the battle against Syria and the northern king Israel. And while it seems to work for the short term, what he really succeeds in doing is opening the door for Assyria to invade the region. And soon the northern kingdom is destroyed, but during the reign of his son, Hezekiah, Judah will be invaded. Jerusalem will be besieged by the very people that Ahaz is appealing to for help. Very often what we think are such good plans, if we leave out reliance on God, they are not good plans. And so, God speaks to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah after it's abundantly clear that Ahaz will not trust in God. And since that's the case, pick up the reading in verse 14 and then we'll jump to 16 and 17. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Verse 16, but before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So far, so good. 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Here's what the prophet is saying. In the time it takes for a young girl who is now a virgin to get married, have a baby, and before that baby is grown up as a responsible adult, the kingdoms that you fear will be no threat to you. They will be taken care of. And the child that comes from that, from that uh, uh, young woman will be a reminder that God is with us. Your enemies will be destroyed. But the power you are turning to for help will eventually be your downfall, eventually invade Judah itself. Assyria will turn on you. It won't happen in Ahaz's life. It will happen in the life of his son. Ahaz is a bad king with a bad plan, and it's going to reap bad results. And Isaiah in his prophecy is outlining the timetable of when all of this is going to take place. But as he speaks those words, his words 
by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, carry long-term implications for a further fulfillment, a very literal fulfillment, when a literal virgin will conceive in a miraculous way and that child will literally be God with us. The Gospel of Matthew helps us connect the dots. It says this in, in chapter 1, starting in verse 20, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, there's double fulfillment here. One in ancient times as the prophet engages with Ahaz and another one in Jesus himself. And the prophet Isaiah, probably without even knowing it, he wasn't conscious of that, but God was using his words to point to Jesus in the first century. Isaiah was speaking God's big picture plan. And while Isaiah was saying that, at the same time, there was another prophet doing the same thing. It was the prophet Micah. Go ahead and turn to Micah, chapter 5. At the same time, roughly the same time as Isaiah, active in Jerusalem, uh, prophesying against the leaders of the land, Micah is uh, kind of Isaiah's country cousin, if you will. Micah does not get to talk directly to the king. He never meets with those who are the rich and the powerful. He speaks to the ordinary folk, the country folk. But his message is exactly the same. And the message is, trouble is ahead. And typical of many of the prophets, as Micah uh, gives his prophecies, what he does is he compresses long periods of time into single statements. In other words, you don't see the gap in between these events as he prophesies them. But the first thing he says is on the near horizon, and that is Jerusalem, the place of power, the outlook for Jerusalem is bleak. Chapter 5, verse 1, Micah says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. See, Micah doesn't have to look very far into the future as he's inspired by God because within 20, maybe 30 years, Jerusalem will be besieged by Assyria. This time, it's, not, it's, the, it's the king Sennacherib who is leading the army. And Judah will be decimated. Jerusalem will be surrounded. But because of Hezekiah's prayer, Jerusalem itself is spared in that occasion. But the nation is devastated. But eventually, and even worse, the enemies will return. And this time it's not going to be the Assyrians. This time it's going to be the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And he will come and he will carry the nation off into captivity. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's going to come. That's kind of the nearer term as Micah is prophesying. But in the distant future, there is promise. There is hope. Look at verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, who, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah is saying the real help is not going to come from the powerful. It's not going to come from the city of troops. It's going to come from a place called the house of bread, Bethlehem Ephrathah. 
Ephrathah was the ancient way of referring to Bethlehem. It literally means fruitful. Fruitful house of bread, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And surprisingly, Micah is saying, this is the place from which greatness will emerge once again. And I say once again because this was the place that King David was chosen to be king. Bethlehem Ephrathah. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, both Jesse and David are called Ephrathites. They lived there. This was a place of promise. But by now, by Micah's day, all of that sense of glamour has worn off. And his contemporaries don't think much of Bethlehem. They're centered their thoughts on Jerusalem. But Micah is saying, focus on Bethlehem because something great, someone great is going to come from there. A ruler will come. One who is coming as not just an ordinary ruler, but none other than the pre-existent God himself coming to us. His origins, some of your Bibles read, his goings forth are from of old, from ancient days. The phrase ancient days could be translated from days of eternity. Micah is emphasizing the fact that this is not the start of this ruler's activity. He has gone forth before. And the one who is going to come in the future is a being from the past. And he has gone out to fight many battles in the past. This is none other than the supernatural eternal God. See, Christmas is not the start of God the Son. Micah is saying, this is what you can expect. He will come in a small town. He will come as a little baby, maybe the weakest of all things. But he will also come as a shepherd. Verse 4, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is why he's coming, Micah says. He's coming to shepherd us. He's coming to protect us and to give us peace. And do you see how Micah is collapsing history here? He's collapsing history. He's actually combining in his prophetic vision both the first advent of Jesus in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and the second advent of Jesus. First, he comes in lowliness. Secondly, he comes in glory as a conquering king, and he will rule in peace over the whole world. Ultimately, he will guide and rule, but not as a selfish dictator. He's going to rule as a caring shepherd, a shepherd who watches over us tenderly, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. And that's an important image for us to remember. Because deep down, all of us realize, we need to admit, I have lost my way. I need a guide. I need someone to shepherd me and to lead me. Micah says, that shepherd is going to come from Bethlehem. Seven centuries before the first Christmas, Isaiah predicts a virgin birth. Seven centuries before the first Christmas, Micah predicts, keep your eyes on Bethlehem. Expect something miraculous to happen there. I want you to see how the crimson thread runs all through the Bible and ties together the plan of God that brings about our hope. And that crimson thread creates expectation. Every Christmas season, we get to tell the story again, the story of expectation, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. God had always had a plan. He was always working the plan. And Advent is the time when we 
with longing hearts once again anticipate the plan for us. And God is in the details. The events of Advent show us God is in the details. Think of it this way. A government-run program moves Joseph and his bride to the place where a 700-year-old prophecy is able to be worked out to the letter. And today we rejoice in that story. The long-expected Savior has come, and God has worked it out. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are always working. You always know exactly what you're doing. You orchestrate the events of history in such a way to bring about your will so that we might be saved, be worshipers, that we might represent your kingdom, and we might have promise of eternal life. We thank you for that. Thank you that your love is so everlasting, and you see us, you know us. Help us to turn to you with confidence and trust because you are trustworthy. Forgive us for the times that we cling to our plans and forget about your plans. Help us to remember that that's always a bad plan. We love you, and we want to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.